0: Hello and welcome to Sururbano, a podcast where we talk to leading scholars on Latin American cities about their work, the cities they love, and how to make them better. I'm Isabel Peñaranda Curry, and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley's City and Regional Planning Department. Today, I'm co-hosting with Aurora Echeverria, and our guest is Professor Alicia Holland. We're discussing Professor Holland's article, Roadblocks, How Property Rights Undermine Development in Colombia which, as always, you can find linked in our show notes. While many political economy models define property rights as essential for economic development, this article argues that strong property rights also encourage opportunistic behaviors that can actually undermine infrastructure investments. As we will discuss, this is very salient because the leftist presidential candidate and now president-elect Gustavo Petro went to great lengths to promise to never expropriate. Is it time to rethink property rights from the left as well as the right? Stay tuned. So, welcome everybody. This is our fourth episode of our Sur Urbano podcast.
1: Hi, I am Aurora. I am a PhD student in urban planning at UCLA. My research focuses on property taxes and urban inequality in Latin America, and I'm so excited to be here today.
0: We're really excited to talk to Alicia Holland about her paper that is forthcoming, Roadblocks, How Property Rights Undermine Development in Colombia. We hope that by the time this episode is launched, we'll be able to link it in the show notes, but if not, look out for it. Uh, Do you have any, any ideas about the publication date?
2: I just corrected the proofs, so fingers crossed it'll come out in the next couple of weeks.
0: So we, in this podcast, try to capture the spirit of sitting down with an academic, with your friend who loves cities as much as you do, and getting a beer or a coffee and just talking about cities. So, Alicia, your text looks at the city of Cali. You could, of course, choose any bar or cafe of your preference but did you have one in cali where you love to to hang out
2: i'd actually love to take you guys to an ice cream shop because it's quite hot in cali and so to me the best way to end the day of interviewing is at the lengua de mariposa which is a very brightly colored pastel purple ice cream shop in the san antonio neighborhood And it's right by an old colonial church, so lots of people go through the nearby park with their families, there's music playing, and then the ice cream shop just has a full variety of Colombian fruits. And so you can get really unusual flavors or go for a traditional strawberry, but I think it's just a... It, it captures some of the vibrancy of Cali and then also the fact that, at least for me, coming from the northeast of the United States, the heat is oppressive at times. And so in the late afternoon, it's perfect to stroll through the park, have your ice cream. It's also a neighborhood that's full of murals. There's actually a wonderful mural just down the street by the park. Of a giant bulldozer
1: going through an indigenous town,
2: so it felt very, very fitting for the,
1: the project. <laughs> that sounds incredible. I'm now fantasizing about maracuya ice cream from this ice cream shop in Cali. Yes.
2: Yeah,
1: so, getting right into your research, and your main research question is whether stronger property rights lead to more opportunistic behavior when there is a large development project present, such as highway infrastructure, which is what you study in this case. Can you tell us more about how you came to this research and perhaps how it links up with other research you've done in the past?
2: So I think they're two separate threads. So this article is the broader book project that I'm working on about the politics of infrastructure. And really, that project grew out of my first book, which was about the informal sector and looked in part at informal housing markets. And, you know, the puzzle as I was thinking about that book really was, why were Latin American governments so bad at building formal housing? Like, why couldn't you do a social interest housing program that actually built houses that people wanted at a price that was affordable for a a large fraction of the population and that got me thinking about the kind of construction industry and the challenges of construction more generally and I decided for my second book project like I want to move away from housing I'm frustrated enough with housing programs and so I started thinking about construction in a broader sense of like well is there a more general challenge to building things and why do Latin American states struggle to build, whether it's housing projects or roads or subway systems, what's the challenge of providing those types of physical goods? And so that was sort of one thread of like, how do you build things? And then I think the second part of the project really came out of fascination with how less educated people use the law. You know, I studied these informal neighborhoods where what was so amazing when you interviewed people is like they really understood property law. So you could go to a fancy property law office in Bogotá and no one would be able to tell you like the first thing about eminent domain law or environmental protection law and then you would go to a poor neighborhood in like la Bolívar on the outskirts of Bogotá and like people there would tell you like okay well, like in 24 hours here are your rights if you've invaded a piece of land you know if you're on an environmental zone these are your rights. And there was this incredible knowledge and use of law by people who we don't really expect to understand the law. And so something similar was happening around the infrastructure projects that I started to study, which is that you saw actually local communities and people affected by these projects talking in really sophisticated ways about their rights, their compensation, and the way that the law could be used actually in their favor. And that sort of unexpected leveraging of the law is something that has always fascinated me and really showed up in both my book projects. So that that was a sort of genesis for this article.
0: You mentioned an interest in the law, but this paper in particular looks at property rights. And just as a way of setting up um, your argument, you allude to conventional wisdom that exists right now about the relationship between property rights and development. And you refer to scholars such as Hernando de Soto or Douglas North. So could you elaborate a little bit on what the conventional wisdom right now is about that relationship?
2: I'm really writing in response to two big pushes in the literature, largely in political science and economics. So on the one hand, Hernando de Soto is really recognized for pushing the formalization of property. His book, The Other Path and follow-up work really emphasize that the, the reason that many people were poor and the country stayed poor is that they lacked property rights. And around land rights in particular, he pushed for the provision a formal titles to property as a way to both secure what people already were sort of informally owning and then also to turn those assets into capital in the sense that they can be traded and that people would invest in them and transact with them and that would create wealth. You know, that led to many international organizations really pushing efforts to provide formal legal titles to property. In many ways, this paper is saying that those formal titles certainly can have some of the effects that DeSoto was interested in, but they also, in a lot of cases, really have complicated the, the pursuit of other state projects and one of the reasons that they do so is that the easier it is to acquire property title the easier it is for informal housing to be converted into this formal property well that also creates a reason why why people might try to acquire informal land in the first place. And so some of the dynamics that I talk about in my paper are when there's a large infrastructure investment, many times people will actually flock to that investment, will look at where the root or the site of the investment is, and know that if they can position themselves on that site, they will have a chance to... Um, acquire formal rights and also potentially receive compensation and participate in broader legal claims making around that infrastructure project. So it's sort of a perverse consequence of this attempt to make it easier to acquire property rights. And then there's the second stream of literature that really comes out of people like Douglas North, um, but is also picked up by um, Jerome Osimoglu and James Robinson in their work coming out of economic history on the importance of property rights as sort of a key institution to promote economic growth. Um, And there's a lot of question in that work of what they are most interested in terms of property rights. They talk about things like intellectual property, but they also have in mind the sort of physical property um, and there's a long debate in history that I won't get into about what is the role of secure property rights in actually creating economic growth. A lot of it is around the Industrial Revolution. Like, is it really true that the British case had strong property rights at the point of industrial um, industrialization? Some literature actually says no. Like, industrialization required really using eminent domain to you know build railway lines and to sort of consolidate land. And so this article touches on those broader debates about how actually some degree of weakness in the property system might be necessary to um, get a more efficient use of land and also to build infrastructure projects seen as critical to economic growth.
1: And I mean, in that way, your article does such a great job of highlighting some of these downsides of property rights in the way that you know, highway projects, which can bring so many benefits to many people can be undermined by individuals or um, communities. And you kind of center this around the concept of opportunistic behavior. So what is opportunistic behavior? And what are some of the strategies that you identified people use to engage in this kind of behavior and undermine large development projects?
2: Opportunistic behavior is is a broad term to to think about taking advantage of a particular moment in time or a particular relationship with state authorities. And I talk about opportunistic behavior in a couple of ways. So first, if you come from the United States or an advanced industrial um, economy, you often think about opportunistic behavior around infrastructure in terms of holdout problems. So this is a very classical problem in economics where, you know, if you own a piece of land that's critical for some project. Well, you can use the fact that that piece of land is needed by the government to bargain for much more money than what the land is worth. So there the opportunism is, I have some private value of the land, but I know that my land is now critical, so I can extract many more resources from the state. But in many um, developing countries in particular, you see two other types of opportunistic behavior. Um, So the first are what I call infrastructure trolls. And here I'm really playing on the idea of patent trolls. So a patent troll is someone who, like in the physical world, owns a piece of intellectual property that's critical for some innovation. And then uses that to ask for, for or to extract more money from the person trying to innovate. And in the case of infrastructure projects, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, what happens is that you often have people who don't already have a property claim around an infrastructure project, but know that the government is going to need land to build a certain project. And so they'll actually put themselves in the path of the project. So in a lot of my interviews, people would say things like, you have to make yourself affected by the infrastructure project. Like you need to put yourself there because this is your chance to really um, push for compensation. In a lot of cases was pushing for housing and relocation elsewhere, even when the person wasn't initially living at the site of the infrastructure project. And then the third type of opportunistic behavior that I talk about is really a scope expansion, which is something that happens more at the community level. So here is a case where communities are often aware that infrastructure projects are a time when governments really need something from the community. They need the land. They need the cooperation of the community in order to build. Politicians are often really impatient to build, and so they're going to want that consent quickly. And so many community members and even those who aren't directly on the site of the infrastructure project will say, this is our time. This is our time to ask for schools or health clinics or community centers that the state often hasn't provided. So especially in developing countries where there are really important unmet needs, these infrastructure projects become a moment Not to give an opinion about the infrastructure project or even resist the infrastructure project, but to use that moment when the state needs something from a community to ask for many unmet um, demands to finally be addressed.
1: Right. And in that way, it seems to be very different from... Uh, what in your article you referred to as principled opposition, which is when individuals oppose a project for a number of specific reasons and actually do not want to see it carried out.
2: Exactly, so there, there are many types of infrastructure projects where the community is hurt by the project. So if you think of large dam projects, if you think of a sewage treatment plant, the surrounding community often really suffers in order to provide a broader benefit for a larger spatial unit. I'm studying cases where probably the impacts of the infrastructure on a local community are, if not beneficial, at least more ambiguous. And so these are cases where the community might even support the infrastructure project. They might see that a road really will connect them to cities and broader development opportunities. But nonetheless, they see the project as a time to address many other distributive needs. It's certainly the case that there are infrastructure projects where community demand making is a way to oppose the project, to stall the project. But I'm interested in cases where the community has a somewhat more positive view of the project, but still knows that they have power in this moment to ask for other distributive demands.
0: I think this question um, segues really well into maybe your selection of Colombia as a site of study. I was kind of shocked to find out reading your article that in 2007, Colombia had among the worst transportation infrastructure in Latin America, and it ranked 89th out of 184 countries. And this being a country that is kind of middle income, and you identify that this comes from the unique configuration of institutionality and recognition that Colombia has, in that it both recognizes property rights and with a kind of high degree of compensation, but also has a broader communitarian um, scope of recognition of ownership. So, could you talk a little bit more about this Colombia paradox or why Colombia is such an interesting place to do this research?
2: Yeah, so Colombia is a fascinating country of contradictions. On the one hand, I think people who know little about Colombia would be shocked to hear a classification that it's a country with strong property rights. You think of the civil war, the dispossession that comes from the internal conflict. And I think most of us think for the problem in Colombia is property rights are so weak and so disrespected. And that's All true. That is a major challenge in Colombia, especially in rural areas. On the other hand, Colombia has a pretty amazing constitutional court and a pretty long tradition of protection of private property rights. And a lot of people who've tried to build anything in Colombia would say excessive protection of property rights. A lot of times property rights are protected through the court system, which then means that you're waiting for a judge to rule, to authorize the use of something like eminent domain, informal property rights actually are recognized very quickly. And then since 1991, in the new constitution, you also have a pretty strong recognition of ethnic property rights and prior consultation. And in many ways, those provisions slipped into the constitution without people realizing their full consequences for the state's development projects and even for private development projects. But many other Latin American countries, we talk about things like prior consultation around mining projects and extractive projects, but Columbia actually applies those rights to all public policies, which means that when the government wants to build a road, it also is facing communities that have pretty strong rights to participate in those decisions. So on the one hand, it's a country that has very weak property rights and rural property rights and major threats from armed groups to property. And on the other hand, it's a country with a long legal tradition and very strong property rights on the books. So it's a fascinating case to study how property rights and how formal property rights um, affect infrastructure provision. And also in in a country that really is trying to improve its infrastructure. So Colombia is trying to spend an enormous percentage of GDP to actually address some of the gaps in its infrastructure, but is doing it at a time when property rights have been enshrined in the Constitution and increasingly are made effective by the court system.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that unlike maybe the trajectory of industrial countries, Colombia developed property rights before it really developed its infrastructure. And that's at the core of some of these challenges. And we were talking in response to some recent news, how this is actually playing out right now in the presidential elections. So for our listeners, the front runner right now is a leftist, possibly the first maybe in Colombian history to be eligible to be president, Gustavo Petro, and as leader of the historic pact for Colombia, he and his vice presidential running mate, Francia Marquez, had to sign an agreement a few days ago or decided it was um, strategic to sign an agreement before a notary establishing that they will not carry out expropriations under their government. And for me, this kind of encapsulates the contradictions of Colombian politics where even the most leftist candidate um, has to promise to do something that's well within the repertoire of even liberal democracies. Do you have any thoughts on this pact against expropriation that he signed?
2: I'm so glad you brought it up because I think it, it gets at two things that are at the, the heart of my article, which is that when you use the term expropriation, and often that is a term used both for eminent domain cases like the government trying to build a road and for cases where you might think of oh the communist threat of taking private property away from one group to redistribute to another group. So those are the same terms and they often create the same boogeyman of the left and so Petro you know is, is going to take away people's apartments in Bogota which of course is not in his political project but that is an easy way to caricature and create fear of the left. But as you say, expropriation also has legitimate purposes. You need to use and expropriate property to build some of the infrastructure that the right really wants. You know, if you want to build a highway, somehow you're going to have to repurpose the land. So that conflation of concepts is is used really frequently politically. The second point is that actually when you think about, okay, so where does Colombia's extreme defense of property rights and the sort of um, clunky set of eminent domain procedures that I write about in my article come from, it's a very parallel political debate right before the 1991 constitution is signed, which the 1991 constitution occurred at the moment that ADM-19 was forming a political party and demobilizing as a guerrilla group and its leader at the time, Antonio navarro Wolf, had proposed actually a, a, a series of eminent domain procedures that would have made it a lot easier to build infrastructure. So you didn't have to go through the court system before the government wanted to build something. And basically at the time, conservative landowners say, Oh, forget it. We can't have those types of property rights. Like in order to protect against expropriation both from for redistributive purposes and in the case the government's trying to build something, we need to make sure that a local judge approves everything before before we repurpose property. And so In some ways, that initial conservative fear is what leads to this strong defense of private property rights that then undermines center-wing politicians' attempts to build infrastructure. So the debate we're seeing now, I think, is just another piece of this kind of long tension around how to protect property and whether the main threat to property really comes from the state trying to build projects or the state trying to redistribute land or from external armed actors. So I think the current debate from Petro needing to to promise not to expropriate really hits on a nerve in Colombian society and also um, shows us how much the property laws have been defined by this
0: fear of the left taking power. Yeah, and I would just add, I studied um, for my master's the state-directed colonization policies, which came out of law 135 of 1961, also known as the agrarian reform law. And there you can also really trace the origins of the current inequality in land distribution in Colombia, which is one of the highest in Latin America. But you see the exact same arguments about the boogeyman of expropriation That time in a kind of developmentalist key. And in fact, the agrarian reform law, even though it was apparently one of the most progressive pieces of legislation in Colombian history, didn't do most of what it said it wanted to do and instead promoted colonization towards the margins into areas like Caquetá, where many of these armed actors would then emerge. So all those histories are definitely really connected.
1: Uh, you mentioned that informal property rights are recognized very quickly. Uh, I'm curious how quickly this is. Is it immediate? Uh, is it in a span of a few weeks, days? Um, and because that seems to be very central to kind of this, the ability to engage in this important behavior and uh, development projects. You know, I've studied the case of Mexico. That's kind of where my background is at. and. I'm not sure that the recognition of informal rights are that quick and also that there is such a um, a large indemnization for uh, when you know individuals are displaced or moved Uh, so yeah can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure so
2: it's unique and not in the sense that um in most countries, once you've occupied land for a certain period of time, and often it's quite quick. So, Colombia, you know, it'll be 48 hours basically. Um, and similarly in Peru, often after the passage of a day or two, you have essentially acquired the rights to due process. So, that's not to say you have any right to compensation, but you now have a claim of occupation of the land. And the challenge in a cumbersome court system is once you need a court to weigh the rights that you've acquired and ensure that due process has been observed you're often talking about a judicial delay of a year two years during which time the people on the land have the right to to often stay there until the court rules and so it's that sort of combination of quick recognition that like Somehow this claim needs to be heard, and this goes back to also what we were talking about in terms of DeSoto and land titling. You know, the sense was, you know, you have a lot of people who have been there for a long period of time who should have a right to due process and to to adjudicate their claims. So that's, that's part of what's going on. Now, the second piece of it is, you know, regardless of whether you have formal title or not. Many legal systems try to say, okay, well you might not own the land, but you still are gonna require some compensation for whatever you build on the land. And the challenge there is that when you have an infrastructure project, if you're just compensating somebody for what they built on the land, and you're saying, okay, well your house is only worth $500, go buy a new house elsewhere, That's an absurd proposition. The person isn't going to be able to go and get housing for the same amount of money. So in many legal systems that also recognize a social right to housing, you have a real bind. Because when the government is coming to propose an infrastructure project, they somehow need to make sure that the people being dislocated by that project are able to secure housing. And That's where the Colombian legal system ends up being more generous to those who have the least because they will basically say, all right, well, you don't necessarily own the land, we can't pay you based on the land, but we do need to make sure that your right to housing is actually recognized. So compensation needs to be sufficient that you could go and get housing elsewhere. and That often is defined in terms of the minimum price of a social interest house. And sometimes that's much more than what people have built on the site of an infrastructure project. I don't know about Mexican law, but given the Constitution does respect the right to housing, I think that there's at least a similar constitutional case that could be made that even if what's due to property law is a very small amount, just the amount of improvements on the land, you still often in the case of a vulnerable person will end up paying much more in compensation, which is what then creates an incentive to sort of, as I said before, make yourself affected by the project.
0: Great. So I think we could start delving into your actual fieldwork. You did extensive fieldwork, which included survey research and interviews and the study of administrative data that you carried out through an eight-month period. So could you tell us a little bit about what that process was like, and how you ended up zeroing in on Cali instead of maybe Bogota, besides the quality of the ice cream, which
2: (laughs) is a very important factor. Yeah, so I did a, a couple of different types of interviews and then also using different methods. So I did start in Bogota because many of the major national agencies and government offices are in Bogota, so I spent a long time speaking to the highway agency and then the sort of national infrastructure agency that I meet, trying to understand, you know, how they tried to build infrastructure, who was responsible for actually acquiring the land around projects, And then their perception of how property law affected their ability to build. And so those were a sort of preliminary set of interviews. And that's where a lot of the idea of the paper really came from, was just hearing from government officials, like, land really delays these projects. And surprisingly, like, it's not the the huge landowners that, that are the problem, sort of holding out in a traditional sense, but instead... A lot of times it's the complications that come from the community members who want to find some way to get a slice of an infrastructure project, and then also the challenge of the prior consultation, especially from black and indigenous communities. And so then I started thinking well, I probably need to focus in and really understand the kind of community's perspective and Uh, Going back to the point that I made earlier, like how do people come to understand their rights and the law in these contexts? So that really pushed me to go and try to study a couple of different types of infrastructure. I was most interested in transportation infrastructure, but I also, going back to the theme of cities here, I also have been looking at um, more urban projects. So I started studying what had happened with some of the cable car projects in Bogota. In Medellin, I was interested in Cali, trying to repurpose sort of a green corridor. So these were much more urban investments. But then I also wanted to study, at the time, Colombia was building really extensive high wings. And a lot of people said, you know, if you want to understand the challenges of land provision, like you have to go and see essentially the what's happening in terms of land politics outside of Cali and the route to Buenaventura. And this is a critical segment of highway in part because Buenaventura is such an important port city and Cali is a major industrial producer. And you would think like this is one of the first highways, like if you want to increase exports and economic growth, like it needs to be fast and efficient. And so there's a lot of focus on this sort of corridor. And so, basically, I, I went to Cali. I talked to a lot of actual private firms involved with the project. Pretty much every construction company now has a sort of unit in charge of acquiring land and community relations. And those company interviews were fascinating because they were often at the front lines and really were able to tell me, like, here are the community leaders you need to talk to, here are the complications. Obviously, there's the formal property rules, and then there's a lot of informal bargaining that also happens. And so those interviews were really telling And then I basically tried to follow the construction route. So driving away from Cali towards some of the intermediary towns I'm talking to community leaders around the route. One of the things that also fascinated me about this highway is that, you know, you have many different types of communities affected. Some have been recognized as Black communities with their own um, sort of official body, which is like a Consejo Comunitario. Um, Others are... Black in demographics, so majority Black, but didn't have a structure of representation. Others are not particularly Black and were confused about why they had different rights. And then as you go towards Buenaventura, you get into um, a more urban kind of Black population that also has a different set of leaders and demands. So this highway allowed me to really see a lot of how differences in community structure that mapped on to strategies and knowledge about sort of possible reactions to the highway project
1: linking that to your field work uh, where i imagine you spoke to many different individuals residents local national government officials did anything in these conversations stand out to you or surprise you um you know, and thinking about how residents perhaps saw these development projects or even perceived their property or anything like that, that you can share with us from your field experience?
2: Yeah. So some of the things that I focused on and fascinated me had to do with how residents understood whose project this was, who was in charge. So one of, one of the sort of alternative explanations that is out there is that the reason that there's so much kind of claims making in part is that these projects are seen as the the responsibility of multinational corporations. So it's not like you want to extract from the Colombian state, but you want to extract from, let's say, Odebrecht or some huge company that is seen as having very deep pockets and maybe also some amount of like international resentment as well. And I found surprisingly little ability to distinguish who was in charge of these projects. Like there was always some general sense of the state, which had a lot of money. <laughs> and there are companies floating around, but uh, that wasn't the sort of primary conflict that was happening. And I think that was a real contrast between some of the work on more extractive mining projects, where there is this clear sense that who the mining company is and the mining company having its own set of interests and strategies. Here, there's a real collapse of the state and like, who knows? So there's a public highway agency in VS, there's a privatized highway agency, ANI, and then there's like purely private projects and all of that kind of got lumped together. So that was one thing that stood out really, really early on. Like, people thought they were making claims on the Colombian state and some view of the nation that had let them down in the past. And that was the second piece that was important. It wasn't just like they couldn't distinguish and didn't understand. It was like they were often making continuous references to past state failures as a reason for their current actions. Many of the areas that I traveled through are, are quite rural and isolated, very continue to be quite poor parts, mixtures of paramilitary, still some guerrilla violence, and I think that's important because the view was really like the state has never been there for us. And so I do think that shapes what people then think they're entitled to around these projects. And so that was the second thing that really stood out to me was the extent to which this wasn't claims making just about a highway. This was claims making about what it meant to be a citizen of Colombia in a rural area where money was being spent on things that you didn't necessarily have any say in. And so, you know, people would often say, I don't care about the president's highway. What I need is water. I need a job. I I want somewhere to take my kid to play safely. So it goes back to like infrastructure was the way people finally found voice and leverage for a long set of historical claims.
0: You have a really great quote that opens your your article of um, Mayor of Dagua saying people see the highway as an opportunity to ask for the moon and the stars because it's the first time and many people think it will be the last time that the state has come to them. And that to me, as someone who worked in Caqueta, which is another peripheralized territory, is so the relationship of the state. Where it's one of feelings of abandonment and feelings that this could be your only chance to be visible in the eyes of, of the Colombian state.
2: Exactly. And I think that was really strongly felt in her. And then I think I'd just say, like, the third layer that really stood out. And I didn't have as much space in the article to write about as I want. It's just the politics around who is Black and also who is deserving. Isabel, you brought up the sort of increasing kind of politics of recognition. And one of the hard things is, like, there's sort of formal legal structures of recognition of Black communities. And a lot of those, you know, Tiana Paschel really nicely writes about, um... Attempts to translate the structures of indigenous communities to think about black political claim making. But these structures historically, like often, weren't explicitly for black communities. Like they were the juntas de acción comunal, which were just like neighborhood structures that then get kind of transfigured into these black political organizations because that's the structure that the state has started to recognize and bargain with. And so some communities learn that kind of early on and start having a sort of nascent black politics around the community. Others kind of invent that figure once infrastructure projects are proposed and they realize it's a useful legal figure for what always was a black community, like had black political representation. And then other communities, and this was something that really surprised me, like really just don't get the politics of recognition. They're saying like, we're all forgotten areas, like we're all peasants. They want to make a much more class-based argument about exclusion and are seeing this new inequality form in rural areas because of the way that you're layering on top ethnic politics on class-based politics. And that was, those were fascinating sets of interviews because oftentimes be talking to the leader of a neighborhood organization or a territorially defined organization who would feel totally cut out of the infrastructure project and abandoned because the legal figure that the state wanted to bargain with was a black community organization. And they felt like that organization often was usurping what was a much more representative organization of those who were actually affected by the project. So that tension to me was really interesting and something that I don't think I realized before I went to do my field research.
1: And turning back a little bit to the field work, I think one of the most exciting things about this new research of yours is a really cool survey experiment that you carried out. Uh, so from what I understand, you did a thousand surveys in Cali and in this you divided you know, randomly selected individuals into two different treatment groups um, that were presented with different framings of uh, property, their property rights. Now, one was a liberal framing and the other one was a status framing of property. Can you share with us, uh, what were you testing exactly and what information were these individuals in different groups presented with?
2: This is a survey experiment, so it's embedded in a larger kind of public opinion survey in Cali. And unfortunately, I I largely picked Cali in this case just due to the logistics um, of doing a survey, which is that they're pretty well-established sampling frames and survey firms that were able to operate in Cali. Whereas had I gone to more rural areas outside of Cali, that would have been much more complicated. But what I wanted to do was use the survey experiment to try to see the extent to which, you know, making salient the rights that people have actually changes the demands that they make. And the reason I really wanted to do this was to separate out the effect of legal rights from broader communal structures, like you might think. Well, claims making, it's just a reflection of whatever sort of local organizing or social capital exists in the community. And so what a survey experiment does is it abstracts from most some of that social network to say, like, okay, let's try to isolate. Like, what work are rights and property rights specifically doing? And the other sort of advantage of doing this in Cali is actually goes back to, like, complexity of Colombian property law. Like, you have a sort of national law that is somewhat resistant to essentially administrative, simpler eminent domain procedures. So like, no national agency will kind of go around the local court system when they need to get land for infrastructure. But mayors actually have this power to use administrative law to use a kind of simpler procedure, um, which I labeled as a more status procedure because it makes it easier for the state to operate and get the land it needs. And so what I tried to do in this experiment is make salient Either sort of the underlying kind of private property rights give individuals a lot of protection against the use of eminent domain versus a more status procedure that gives individuals fewer rights. And then I try to look at what are the demands that people make when confronted with these two different kind of property law systems within the same jurisdiction, within the same community setup. One of the tricky things that I had to think about was whether to ask this in terms of a purely sort of like abstract vignette, which is kind of common in political science, or to ask it more concretely about like an an individual person's like house or property I decided to ask it in a more abstract way, in part because I was worried that people might have seen me and the survey firm as like trying to take their house away. And there is a lot of fear around these types infrastructure projects that I didn't want to falsely create, or if you buy my argument, there's also a lot of opportunistic behavior that can be possible that I also didn't want to spur. So I asked it in this kind of abstract way of like, you know, imagine that there's a house worth about $30,000, like how much would he then ask for in compensation if that house is needed for an infrastructure project? And I asked about a project being done, and I varied this, either by a private company or by the government. Um, Again, I was interested in the extent to which people separated those two things. I saw this based on my qualitative field research largely as an alternative hypothesis because I didn't think people were particularly good at separating the entity, but I did wanna see like, okay, if I'm a little bit more deliberate about it, is there any difference in what people are asking for, if it's a private company or if it's the government. I'm just to preview the findings, like in line with my expectations, when you really emphasize private property rights, people do ask for greater compensation, they're more likely to look to the courts and file a legal claim in order to get that compensation. And I didn't find differences between a kind of private company and um, a government project, at least in terms of the opportunistic behavior. I did ask a series of questions, you know, would you be more likely to meet with the mayor or would you meet with a private firm? And along those dimensions, like unsurprisingly, people want to like go to the private firm's office if it's a private project. But in terms of this opportunistic claims making, it occurs on both types of projects.
1: Were you at all concerned of social desirability bias and the you know potential that survey respondents might give answers that are not in line with their true beliefs, but more with what they consider to be socially good behavior?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. And part of it is I did ask not only about opportunistic behavior in terms of like how much money you wanted, but also would you potentially invade the site that's needed? I also asked about would you as a community like demand goods like parks and sewage and water? And that question about invading land is particularly thorny because obviously you worry like people aren't going to be willing to tell the truth, even if they would. It's also a weird question to ask in Kali, which is like much more developed. So it's like, where is this land we're going to invade around a project like in the center of the city? It's a little bit harder to, to, to grapple with, you know, how to make sense of that question. So I was worried about those questions, which is why I asked them in a couple of different ways to try to reduce the social desirability bias. So I asked, would you report a neighbor building in a project site? Um, Just because that might give you a sense of what people, even if they weren't willing to admit something they would do, um, they might be willing to show their approval or disapproval. But all of those questions are a little bit complicated because it goes back to, I would have loved to run this survey in a rural area where I think those sets of behaviors are even more common, but I wasn't able to, to do the sampling there. But I do think in terms of how much you'd ask for in terms of compensation, my main concern wasn't that people wouldn't be willing to say, but instead like they often wouldn't have thought about the issue because part of my... More general sense is like when people who, who, especially who have less education or less income, start to learn about these legal issues, it's when it, it affects their life. It's when their housing depends on it that you're going to figure out, like, how much should I ask for for my house? Let me study that issue. And so I think the problem with this table survey experiment isn't so much social desirability. But the lack of social salience, the lack of a concrete action that's going to lead people to actually invest and learn about the law and make sure that the mechanisms are operating as I expect.
1: So thinking a little bit about the findings, you do find that there's a connection between stronger property rights and more opportunistic behavior in these highway development projects in Colombia. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what the extent of this connection is. Is it just something that was identified in this very particular highway project in Cali? Or is it a trend that is also present in other highway projects in, you know, throughout the country? And um yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the massive highway ex- infrastructure expansion going on right now in Colombia and whether these kind of Connections between opportunistic behavior and property rights are also observed in, in you know, many other cases beyond the specific study you do.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. And what I try to do in my research is use audit reports um, done by the national comptroller, the controller, um, to look at the types of problems that emerged on other highway projects and similar work actually has been done on other infrastructure types. And basically, the Conta has audited about half of these major highway projects. And what you find is that in more than two-thirds of them, there's some type of opportunistic behavior. So these are, this is evidence of some take or some cases where there's been land invasions at the project site or where um, community bargaining has really slowed down the project. And so that gave me a sense that this is a much more general challenge to building infrastructure. And I should say that this is also something that there have been surveys of construction firms in Colombia where firms will name like one of the hardest things about building infrastructure in Colombia is getting the land and bargaining with communities. Um, so I do think this is at the heart of some of the construction challenges that you see to these projects.
0: And I guess to, to take that question a step further and maybe trying to wrap up what has been a really great conversation, what do you think your findings indicate about how we should treat or frame property rights in places like Colombia with those conditions of infrastructure that dramatically needs investing and improving even for the very communities that surround them and these conditions that generate incentives for rational actors to seek opportunistic behaviors. Do you have any um, recommendations maybe for Petro's future government, maybe for whoever else gets elected about how we should be talking about property?
2: Yeah. So I'd step back and say that, um, I think a lot of the debate about property thinks of the main issue as giving individuals rights to do what they want with their property, to invest in that property, to transact the property, um, and that that process is gonna create rapid economic growth. If we, That's the Hernando de Soto solution. But I think the other side, um, and this goes back to your point about the sort of rhetoric of the developmental state, is that, you know, states in their attempts to create growth often need to shape the use of property. One important channel for that is obviously infrastructure. Um, so, you know, you can't have someone with a pineapple farm get their pineapples to market without the infrastructure needed. And I think then more broadly, you can think about the ways in which the state tries to repurpose land for more Efficient or more equitable uses so like given this is a podcast on cities you could bring it back to urban structure like many people would say the main challenge of latin american cities is that they're sprawling they have really inefficient land use and so you have to say like okay even if that comes at the expense of individual property rights like should states be intervening more actively to densify cities, to repurpose land, to consolidate city boundaries and housing. And some of those actions, even though they seem like they're expropriation, but they're also critical to market-led economic growth. And so I think that the debate about property has tilted so far in favor of sort of individual recognition of property rights and give people documents and like magically growth will happen um, and away from the ways in which states need to intervene in land markets and need to intervene to create the types of uses of land and underlying infrastructure that actually makes property valuable and makes those individual titles meaningful. And so I hope the broader takeaway of my paper is really to kind of think about this second side and the ways in which actually individual property rights have blinded and complicated the state's pursuit of these kind of broader developmental goals.
0: Great. Um, well, thank you guys so Alicia, that was wonderful. And I think very timely for the reasons that we discussed. I think this question or conversation is so overdue particularly within the left. And it requires some difficult conversations and probably some stronger positions that may or may not justify to never expropriate. That's a tactical move that I understand had to happen. But I think you're absolutely right that we need to be talking about property again. And this is just a wonderful place to start. So thank you so much.
2: Well,
0: thank you guys for the invitation. This was so much fun. Sururbano is a product of the Latin American Cities Working Group based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at latam underscore cities, on Twitter or write to me on Instagram or Twitter at ipenarandac. If you like this episode, click subscribe, leave us a review, and please tell your friends. This season was made possible by UC Berkeley's Global Metropolitan Studies and the Center of Latin American Studies. Our original music is made by a planner, Jaime Alejandro Angarita. And our original art is made by the talented Rachel Myers check out her Instagram. Finally, our production was done by Francesca Frenzy, without whom this truly would not have been possible. Thanks, everyone.